This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the September 2021 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. This month, we're looking at the work of our historical societies, museums, and educational resources, the stories they tell and how they remake history with our communities. So each one of our towns has an historical society or museum whose job it is to present the stories, the artifacts, the cultures from the past to tell the stories of how the town has grown and evolved. These societies and museums can be great resources for local schools, giving young people an understanding of the place they live and are a part of. Of course, our histories are long, intricately interwoven tapestries of people coming from many other places, settling, making families, starting businesses, working for others, taking part in social, artistic, religious groups, and generally shaping the community and creating culture. But which stories get told? Which strands in this tapestry get the focus and who decides? We've all heard that, of course, in battles of all sorts, it is the victors who get to tell the story. But in these days of increased awareness of the differences among us, how do all the stories get told? To discuss how this is working today in some of our local history institutions, we welcome to the program today two history museum directors, plus a co-founder of an indigenous educational initiative. Our guests today are Ramin Ganeshram, executive director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture. Welcome, Ramin. Thank you so much for having me. Diane Jellaret, Executive Director of the Norwalk Historical Society. Welcome, Diane. Hello. And Endornis Spears, co-founder of the Agamot Educational Initiative, dedicated to furthering knowledge of Native, American, of Native America in schools, museums, and other public spaces. Welcome, Endornis. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start by learning a little more about each one of you and how you came to be working for these historical organizations. Um, I know both Norwalk and Westport societies were founded back in the 1890s. I think one 1889 and one 1899. So mm -hmm. they are over a century uh, old institutions with, with their own long histories. Ramin, you came to the Westport Historical Society as it was then fairly recently, um, I think in 2018. Correct, that's right. Um, tell us what drew you to, um, that, um, to that job, to that institution, um, leading this venerable institution. Well, you know, the thing is, I'm, I'm a journalist by training. I went to Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism uh, you know, I worked as a <clears throat> regular contributor to the New York Times for many years. 
and a lot of other um, major publications. And over the course of my own career as a journalist and as a writer, I started moving toward writing about history or looking at current events, looking at um, trends and movements um, through the lens of history. It's just something I was always in love with, even as a child, which I credit my father with that love. And then as I moved through my career or different iterations of my career, that was the thing that remained. So when that job became available, um, it really intrigued me because it was the potential to marry a love of history, a business acumen I had developed over many years, um, running publications and other types of businesses. Um, But more than that, I was really interested in the idea that I knew from doing larger research for larger projects that the entire story of this area really at New England in particular, uh-huh. has been rewritten. And we're going to talk about that later. But that's the thing that made me intrigued about the potentials of that job. That's great. So you really are a storyteller. You've always been a storyteller. So right. that's at the core of, of your interest. Um, so what do you know about the history of the, his, of the historical society? How has it evolved and changed over the century? How much of, of that do you, are you aware of? it's something that we're incredibly aware of and I'm yeah. incredibly aware of because you can't be in the business of history without looking at yourself yes, <laughs> and right. really understanding kind of what brought you to the place where you are. And for institutions, um, in, to order to understand how interpretation has been, you have to understand what it was or what it could be. You have to understand what it, what it has been. So in our case, the, as you said, then society, and it has changed its name multiple times since yeah. 1989. Mm-hmm. It started out as um, Westport Historical Society, then Saugatuck Historical Society, then back to Westport Historical Society and Museum, and then Westport Historical Society, and now it's Westport Museum, uh, which was a decision of the board actually before I arrived. Oh. Um, that was only enacted um, about a year and a half ago, a couple of years ago. In any case, um, it was a society that was created by, as many of these are, interested families in the area that counted themselves as quote unquote original families, Mm -hmm. sort of original colonizing families, English families, right? Um, And it was a mutual interest society that met in people's living rooms uh, where they shared little artifacts and things that they had from their own families and formed a society. It kind of went dormant for a while and was really reinvigorated in the mid 20th century with again, those same type of people coming together and sharing their um, information. Uh, From that point, Again, like most of these societies, um, completely volunteer run. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very certain sector of the local society. People who were very interested and not unusual. I know, I know Diane will, will agree yeah. with this. Very mm-hmm. preserving their own family stories and their own view of, of what history is, which I want to be clear is a normal human instinct to do, right? We mm-hmm. sense ourselves in the story. The result, though, was um, that an inclusive history that was based on fact was never was never the approach. Um, and so it was very clear that this had to be the approach going forward. And just very broadly, we'll get into the details lately, but how, later, how would you describe your program today in kind of terms of the mission and um, the job of Westport Museum today? 
So our mission is to examine history inclusive of the stories of all people who were present and are present now. Um, to use fact-based, I use the word reporting, but the primary source uh -huh. research to do that. Um, and our goal is that to address what you said in the beginning, um, to provide factual information that tells a complete 360 degree view of history in a way that frankly, for many reasons, it cannot or is not being done in public education institutions. So we see our role as stepping up and filling that need. Oh, interesting. Um, let's turn to Diane. Now, mm -hmm. you've been with the Norwalk Historical Society for over a decade. Uh, yes, I came in in the fall of 2009. I, I remember it well. Um, uh, so when, when I started, I had stepped back. I worked in corporate for over 20 years, and I am an engineer, uh, <laughs> engineer by uh, training. So that was my life. Uh, I used to travel around uh, the U.S., used to travel around the country. Um, and every time I go into a new place, I, I always love history, like Ramin. Um, and growing up in New York, you know, you know, we were exposed to a lot of museums and cultural institutions. And so I go to a new country or a city, I would always, you know, want to find where's the closest museum. I wanted to know about the, the place I was at, um, even though my job was technical, but I, I always had a, a, a love for history. Um, so when I had an opportunity to, uh, to uh, work with the Historical Society, um, I decided to do that. Um, when I moved to Norwalk, uh, because of traveling so much, I didn't know my city as well as I, I wanted to. Um, and this kind of forced it. <laughs> and, um, and I fell in love with it. And, uh, and we've expanded since I've, I've been um, at the Historical Society. Uh, we were based at uh, Mill Hill Historic Park. Uh, everybody knows it at the townhouse, and uh, like Ramin uh, with the Westport, uh, it's gone through many name, uh, several name iterations um, over over the years. Uh, it was uh, established in 1890, uh, 1899. Uh, so Westport's a little older. Um, and it was the society where people met in their living rooms and it went dormant for a little while. Um, actually, I think in the 50s or 60s, and then it was reinvigorated. Um, I'm going to thank uh, Ralph Bloom for reinvigorating it. Um, and it was run in conjunction with the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, Village Green Chapter. So for a long time, uh, the Historical Society and uh, the uh, DAR um, actually worked hand in hand uh, with uh, presenting history of Norwalk. So uh, that's how I, I, I entered and how <laughs> Norwalk, um, how I, I began to understand Norwalk and what it had to offer. And it was at a transition point at that, at that particular juncture. And uh, we, you know, and we've been making it, we've been making it grow. As you know, um, a lot of people know that we uh, are managing the city of Norwalk's uh, museum. We took that over um in 2013 and opened a new museum uh near norwalk city hall so we have two locations um and with that expansion uh we we really decided to re and re revision what we wanted to offer to the city and get feedback uh from from our uh constituents what did you want to see in a museum that was that was part of norwalk 
Oh, so, so, so the city had its own museum, yes. its own historical? Uh, it was, no, it was the Norwalk Museum. Uh, so yeah. there was Norwalk Historical Society, and then there was the Norwalk Museum. And that was located at that time in South Norwalk. Um, and, then the, and then the city, you know, decided that uh, they didn't want to manage it anymore and asked if the Norwalk Historical Society would take over the management of the um, of the museum collection um, and the archives um, and photographs and gene genealogy went to the uh, library and they opened the Norwalk History Room. So uh, we all work hand in hand um, together. Uh, so that's that's how that happened. And we opened that new museum in December 2015. Uh, time is flying. <laughs> right. So you basically have two spaces for mm -hmm. showing, uh, for, for exhibiting material, but you also have a relationship with the documents in, in the library, the, the history yeah. room. Absolutely. Um, that where Mr. Bloom uh, comes in. You mentioned yes. Ralph Bloom. Yes, he has been our um, he's been our historian for Norwalk for uh, for many years. Uh, he was responsible for um, for a lot of the collection uh, that we have currently um, in in the historical society and in the museum. Uh, we're very thankful that he he saw uh, what what could be. Um, so, like our WPA murals. Uh, it, Restoring them and getting that that underway was actually uh, pivotal because we have one of the largest restored WPA mural collection um, in the country. Uh, so and uh, and just keeping it up, uh, it, it it was great. But uh, but we are we move forward when we uh, when we open up the new museum and start our revisioning. Great. I mean, for those who don't know, we should also say that there were several Norwalks um, that came together. Could you just uh, give us like 15 seconds on um, well, the, the two Norwalks that were, yeah. were that had to be consolidated in 1913? So there was definitely two two Norwalks. There was uh, the South Norwalk and then the borough of Norwalk. And the state uh, said that we needed to combine. And that was officially done in 1913. So that's kind of part of what you're doing too, is pulling together the, the histories of these two uh -huh. different communities. Yeah. 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 Okay, and moving on to Endornis. Uh, please tell us a little about yourself, Endornis, and how you came to be one of the co-founders co of Agamort. Yes, um, Yate, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Indonis Spears, and I am an enrolled citizen of the Navajo Nation, um, or Diné people. Um, that's my mother's uh, people. My father uh, is from the White Earth Ojibwe and Choctaw and Chickasaw people. And I live uh, here in Southern Rhode Island uh, with my husband, who is an enrolled citizen of the Narragansett Indian tribe, and our four children, who are also enrolled citizens of the Narragansett Indian tribe. And I co-founded the Agamont Educational Initiative almost four years ago uh, with two of my colleagues who I met while working uh, for over 10 years at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum in Mashantucket, Connecticut. Oh. And for those who may not know, uh, Connecticut is home to the world's largest tribally owned and operated museum. Um, and uh, because located in Mashantucket. 
And because of uh, Mash and Tuckett's uh, interpretive approaches in telling the Pequot story, um, in centering Indigenous knowledge, um, and, and it was so wonderful to hear uh, from Raman and Diane about um, the processes of interpretation, how important methodology is um, in our institutions. Uh, the Pequot Museum um, really, it's, it's been in existence almost 20 years, over just over 20 years now. Um, it, it really um, brought to the forefront indigenous methodologies of museum work. And I think um, has really fostered uh, an environment where uh, indigenous museum professionals can um, look critically at the museum as an artifact of colonialism and make the necessary changes to tell our stories in complete and comprehensive ways. Um, because typical kind of traditional museum work will fall short in telling indigenous stories. So mm -hmm. we need to rethink the way that we um, approach historical societies or public humanity spaces. Um, so because of that, that process of learning at the Pequot Museum, we, we myself and two of my colleagues, uh, Chris Newell, the executive director at the Abbey Museum and uh, Jason Mancini, the executive director of the Connecticut Humanities Council, uh, because of our, our kind of orientation to museum work via the Pequot Museum, we realized that we had a very specific perspective and understanding of museum work that we felt we could share um, with other public humanities spaces. And it was so wonderful to hear um, my colleagues here uh, on our conversation talk about kind of the multi-locational um, uh, nature of the work that we're doing. And Agamount works primarily in public humanities spaces uh, because we were trained in the museum space, but we feel very strongly in the uh, concept, the indigenous concept of education that knowledge cannot be contained within a physical space, right? Knowledge is fluid, it is dynamic. What we learn in one building moves with us to uh, and, and, and shades and colors the way that we understand the world in other buildings. So if we can kind of compound that and, and address these um, multiple locations like schools, universities, public humanities places, we feel like that that is more of an approach that sits well within indigenous understandings of how human beings learn. So um, that, that's how Agamount um, was started. And we do this work in collaboration with, um, with all of these institutions and organizations across New England. So interesting. So um, you're both um, a resource for Native American history, but perhaps even more, more so a, a potential catalyst for rethinking how museums themselves operate. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so we feel like there, you know, we have a certain amount of kind of content expertise that we're always yeah. willing to mm -hmm. either um, provide or direct to the native knowledge economy that exists within New England, which there are a host of indigenous people who may not 
consider themselves historians or may not consider themselves um, uh, ecological scientists, but they are in and they are trained within their communities to have this knowledge. And so we want to put the institutions that we collaborate in contact with those spaces, with those people who work in those spaces, if we don't have that kind of content in-house. And then we also push, we kind of have this method where we like get our foot in the door and then we we kind of um, encourage our collaborators, our institutional mm -hmm. collaborators, collaborators to rethink the way that they um, approach indigenous histories, which is kind of a larger, longer term question that's harder to answer. Right, right. Oh, and t please tell us um, the meaning of agamort. Yes, yes, the word... Absolutely. Agamount is a Passamaquoddy word. And uh, one of my co-founders is an enrolled citizen of the Passamaquoddy tribe from Medoknigook, um, Maine. Um, and uh, the word Agamount in Passamaquoddy means the snowshoe path. Oh. And um, as more and more people who are wearing snowshoes walk across this path um, through the wintertime, the easier it becomes to walk on it, the easier it becomes to traverse. And so we feel that we are on this kind of path towards um, more equitable understandings of Native people and the history of this country. And so we need everyone, everyone on this call, we cannot discriminate, we can't say this is just for Indigenous people, this is just for white people, this is just for immigrants. We need everyone to put on their snowshoes with us. Um, we're all moving in the same direction. That's mm -hmm. wonderful. Thank mm -hmm. you. If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our September edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our subject is remaking history with our communities. Our guests are Ramin Ganeshram, Executive Director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture, Diane Jellaret, Executive Director of the Norwalk Historical Society and Museum, and Endorna Spears, co-founder of the Agama Educational Initiative. So let's dig a little deeper into each of your interests in telling some new and different, maybe deeper stories. Um, let's start with Ramin. You, you put together pretty quickly, it seems, a very important exhibit in 2019 uh, that was called Remembered, the History of African-Americans in, in Westport. It won statewide and national recognition and award of merit from the Connecticut League of History Organizations, a leadership in history award from the American Association of State and Local History and a nomination for the IMLS National Medal. So it clearly had a big impact. Can you tell us a little about the exhibit? What led up to it? Uh, why you put it together and why it was like your first major statement? So in an ironic way, <clears throat> I was already um, doing this exhibit as a guest curator when the job became available for the executive director at Westport um, at the time, Historical Society, Westport Museum. And the exhibit for me came out of, um, to that point, what was nearly um, 10 years of work, very specifically focused on um, a person who I've been studying and researching and writing about for now well over a decade, and that is a man named Hercules Posey, who was the enslaved chef of George Washington. Right. In doing that work, 
um, you know, you can't focus, especially when you talk about enslaved people, um, you can't focus singularly on that one person because the information is simply not there, right? When, when people were seen as property, um, there isn't usually a wealth of information uh, about them. And so I became very accustomed and very skilled in doing research at large about the time, about the era, about the place, about the movements of people. Mm. Um, and so um, I say that to say that I was immersed in the histories of enslaved African-Americans of the 18th century. And in doing my research, I realized that um, this was not an issue just of the South. Uh, Hercules Posey um, lived for a good period of time at the president's house in Philadelphia, so mid-Atlantic, and ultimately self-emancipated to New York City. That's what led me to start looking at our area. And I understood that there was slavery, certainly in Connecticut. Um, and so the impetus for me was to say to the Historical Society before I was executive director, I'd like to tell the story of African-Americans in Westport because African-Americans were in Westport and it was really um, provoked by a statement I kept hearing in Westport from people, which was, it's not that Westport isn't diverse because there's an, an effort to make it not diverse. It's that there simply were not any black people in Westport. Uh, there were simply not uh, any indigenous uh, people in Westport, which as a researcher and writer, I knew was completely false. Uh, um, the nature of colonization and the nature of commerce in the Atlantic trade, New yeah. England, all of this in it made it completely false. So I started to dig and that's mm. how I got the idea for the exhibit. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to then get my job as executive director, <laughs> which then brought, allowed me to bring to bear all the resources of the museum, the staff, the budget, and so on to do the exhibit. And um, as you said, the exhibit was really well received. It started in the period of colonization, went up into the 20th century. It started with enslavement. Um, that was the first place where we also started to touch on something we now do whenever the history makes it, lends itself, and that is indigenous people. Indigenous people were enslaved in this town um, after, after the Great Swamp fight, the end of the um, so-called Pequot Wars. And um, uh, it, it was very, it was, it was largely well received. And I know later there's something you wanna talk about regarding sort of the public um, response to it. Um, but the goal was to talk about all aspects of black, the black contribution to this town, not just enslavement, but also the people who were artists and educators and um, freedom fighters and civil libertarians and physicians, and to really understand that there was a holistic presence here as there has been throughout New England since the 17th century. Hmm. Uh, and that was the goal of that exhibit. So there was also some mixed response from the, t from the town, even though you were getting a lot of professional recognition for it. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Um, and maybe what you learned from the response? Yes, so um, as often happens, and this was kind of, um, you know, as, as pol you know, things were not even as polarized then as they are now. Um, so a lot of the re negative response that we got were from people who felt, first of all, um, almost a sense of shock that what we were telling them happened, happened, you know, that um, the most enslaved people in New England were in the state of Connecticut and most of them were in Fairfield County, right? This was very shocking to people. They didn't know how to process it. 
Uh, some of the people, not all by any means, but some of the people from the founding families, quote unquote, who remain here, um, felt very much um, attacked because it's their family names on these deeds and probate records that we're showing. Um, we've had people come in, we had people come in and stand next to, to deeds of the enslaved and say, there was, no, there was no slavery here in Westport. I don't believe that. And we'd say, well, the, the evidence is you're standing next right, to it. Right. Well, well, I think it wasn't as bad as the South. We got a lot of that. Well, it certainly wasn't as bad as the South, which is this perpetual lie um, New England has been allowed to um, reinvent the story in a way that's frankly untrue, but allows people to say, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same thing. Um, so we got a lot of that pushback. Um, and, you know, we got some actual overt hostility. I will say to you that, and I think this is the thing that institutions like ours really have to be very aware of. And this is what I did learn from it, which is this. Sometimes often the pushback, the hostility was um, subverted, was rerouted, right? So we know that it's really upset about the exhibit, but it comes out as upset about something else, right? Uh -huh. So the institution sort of withstood a lot of, prof not professional attack, we had a lot of professional support, but public attack, not exactly about that. You know, people felt like they couldn't say anything. It was a very interesting to watch people feel like because it was so public and it was so well publicized and it was so well received that if they said anything, it would make them a bad person. So they kind of found other things to complain about, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Um, so Diane, let, let's move on to you. You've several concurrent shows in several spaces. Um, and I just remember I was at that opening of the of your new museum in 2015. Um, I think you had four exhibits. It's two floors, so you can do quite a few exhibits in one in one space. Right. Um, right. One of them was uh, Norwalk, a portrait of diversity, um, a collection of stunning large format photographs by the late Tony Velez, uh, who I knew, and I remember that show very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't really history, but it seemed an important statement about the shows you were going to be doing. Um, so I'm interested how that sort of fit into that, you know, what you, you know, the, the collection that you decided to show, the collection of exhibits that you decided to show um, at the opening of, of the new museum. Just, did you have any comment about that? Yeah, so this was part of our visioning. Um, so we had an opportunity to, uh, because <laughs> the, Norwalk is a very diverse community. Yes. And, um, and there was no place where that was shown. Honestly, uh, we were uh, looking at um, collections from some of the people who um, were of money, of means, and, um, and that was a lot of what was being shown and but there was a whole other community that nobody knew about um and and we wanted to and it's called the portrait of diversity is the room that we called it um and when we asked tony to go around the city of norwalk and he did for a year and take pictures of um, photographs of people who are here who lives in norwalk it's uh young old uh people of color, people not of color. It was 
who who is here is not just we're not just showing the old stuff. Um, we want to show the the entire community. So that's gone over very well. It is still up. Um, everybody loves it um, when they walk in there. And uh, the other thing that we added was um, in the center of that room is going to be the the changing um, exhibit on the, the different communities. And the first one that we started was the uh, African. African-American migration from the South to the North from the 1940s to 1970s. Um, again, stories like that haven't been told and there was nothing, and one of the things that, that I noticed immediately, there is nothing in our collection that reflected um, any, anything like that. Um, so that was a, a we had to start from scratch. We had to go out into the community. We had to interview people. Uh, there was, there were no objects. So that, that was, uh, that was, uh, uh, a, a, an exhibit uh, without any objects. We had to get images, um, but it, it told the story of the people who existed in the ninth, from the 1940s, 1970s. Some of them were still around. We wanted to cover, you know, and include people who might be still alive. <laughs> so, um, and, and we, we did that, but also told the history of segregation. Um, so then this was, um, sorry to interrupt. So this was what's called the second great migration. The second migration. South, yeah. 1940 to 1970. So mm -hmm. key, key years. Yeah. Very key. Yes. So we, we told that story uh, from not just from Norwalk, but what was also happening in the rest of the country um, at that point in time. So we integrated the story. Um, so it's, it's a Norwalk was part of that story. And right. Yes. yes. Well, and what was nice, I mean, what was uh, yeah. almost overwhelming was the fact that there was also this exhibit of very high-end porcelain um, from the Lockwood family. And you really did get a sense of the, the diversity of the stories that you were, that you were representing mm -hmm. there. Um, so how, how do you determine that kind of balance, the balance between the stories you tell? I mean, there's some kind of balance probably between the objects that you do have, the objects in the collection, which certainly must dictate, you know, they need to be shown at some point, um, the interests of the community um, and other factors. How, how do you orchestrate um, all of those kind of factors? Um, so um, what's coming? What's coming up? We do have limited space. It is in a house museum, so yes. the location that we move. So we do have a limited amount of space, and um, and the ability to rotate. We're very small, uh, so so that dictates uh, you know what what gets shown in the archive. So we're we've gone through the first round. So we actually completed the last uh, exhibit room um, in twenty nineteen. And then we had a pandemic last year, so everything stopped. Um, but we were also um, concentrating on opening um, a new exhibit, a permanent exhibit for the city of Norwalk, which um, would concentrate on the history of, of the city because there is no place within Norwalk uh, that you could go to get the, the, the history of the city. Um, and, uh, and we are it. 
uh, to tell that particular story. Uh, again, coming from New York, where you you can you, there are many museums that you can go to um, and and find the the history of the city of Norwalk. Uh, it's just, city of New York, there wasn't one in Norwalk. So it was our responsibility to now be able to do that. So our exhibit that's going to be opening in October, um, we'll talk about uh, Norwalk from the Ice Age. Um, wow. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going way back. Yeah, you'll, you'll see something that we actually borrowed. <laughs> it goes back to uh, to the Ice Age to before 1835. And we stopped at 1835, besides the fact that we didn't have any more room in the, in, in this, in the space. Um, that is also the age of the uh, townhouse in which the exhibit is going to uh, be shown. So we cover four areas, um, main areas, and we have um, pulled uh, various things from our collection. Um, and we have uh, we have some reproductions on um, on uh, some of the artifacts that we're going to show. Um, it also supported our uh, our education program that we do for our uh, schools. Uh, so we cover um, the the indigenous people who lived in um, and lived in Norwalk and and how that all happened. Uh, we also cover um, uh, slavery. Uh, so, and what was happening in Norway, yes, there were slaves and we, we, we acknowledge that and what was going on. Um, and, uh, and then the, and then the battle with the, the, the British <laughs> to get our freedom. So, uh, we have, we cover a little bit of everything, um, in there and in our, our space. I have to mention, of course, one of the most interesting recent developments was, um, the discovery in the demolition of the Walk Bridge across the Norwalk River, a discovery of a 17th century Norwalk Indian fort. Um, uh, can you tell us what you know about that and how that might be incorporated or is it still early days? Uh, it's still early. So um, the site has been excavated uh, and they, it, it, they, they completed it earlier this year. Um, it was discovered uh, a few years ago as part of the Walk Bridge uh, project, uh, you know, they want, needed to excavate and see if there was anything, um, anything um, there. And, and lo and behold, they got the impression that there was a, a fort <laughs> that, and, and this on the street called uh, Fort Point Street. And it was actually um, on the 1847, 1846 uh, Norwalk maps, except nobody knew that we really was there. And that area was used to be swampland. Um, so that's probably why uh, nobody really um, investigated over the years. So uh, everybody was quite excited. Um, uh, the indigenous people did not stay around this area uh, for very long. Once the Europeans came, came uh, everybody kind of disappeared, traveled north and, um, and land was taken away. Um, you know, and so they disappeared really on. So this is very exciting uh, for our state archaeologists to um, actually find this discovery. Uh, they are actually um, analyzing um, all the uh, material that they found, like hundreds of pieces. They, there, there was lots of um, artifacts that they found and they're analyzing that. Um, so we are not in possession of any of it right now. Oh. So, uh, but, but, uh, but it's being analyzed. 
and may change the, what we know in the history of the area um, in Southwest Connecticut. Um, so I guess that's uh, quite a segue to um, Agamot and uh, Donis. Um, again, maybe you could just tell us a little more in depth in terms of the way that you operate. Uh, you are, are both clearly the repository of expertise and uh, knowledge, but also in terms of you know, approach, approaches to history. Um, have you actually all worked together in any way or um, have you? Um, <laughs> uh, Ramin? Sorry about that. Um, very briefly, and mm -hmm. and I worked together in the charrette along with her colleague, Jason, Mancini and, and my colleague and Diane's colleague, Jason, um, and some other uh, people with respect to the fact that our museum had wanted to do an exhibit about the Pagasset people who were the indigenous people of what is today Westport. And um, we, it was a really interesting conversation because through Andonis and um, the council of, of individuals who got together, we actually determined that we did not have the expertise nor the bandwidth to acquire the expertise to do this correctly. So it really taught us a lesson that sometimes um, wanting to do something because you feel it's the right thing to do is not the right thing to do if it cannot be done in the most appropriate way. So we didn't feel that we had the resources, the access to the individuals to really honor this history appropriately. Um, and we didn't, and we did not have um, the representation needed for the story to be told by those who own the story. Um, and we decided not to do it. Um, and so that was really, really through working with Indonis and her group. Yeah, I thank you for for mentioning that um, that kind of phenomena that um, I think many uh, public humanities um, sites encounter, where you're presented with um, some brand new information. You know, you have an opportunity to uh, make some immediate changes, and we see this in Agamemnon quite often around the the um, practice of land acknowledgments. Um, a land acknowledgement statement is something that is typically said, read, delivered in at in-person programs or um, can be presented on a, in, in a web presence, like on an institution's website, um, acknowledging that this land, that these, uh, these organizations, institutions, our lives um, are built on um, the homelands of native people. Um, and often using the, the, the specific term for the tribe in whose homelands um, people are living or where an organization is based. Um, and land acknowledgement statements in the United States have become more popular over the past few um, years. They're quite um, common in other colon uh, settler colonial societies in Australia, New Zealand, and in Canada. Um, but I, I think um, oftentimes there's this jump to do something right that feels right. And oftentimes that can be a land acknowledgement statement a land acknowledgement statement also requires work. It also requires 
pre and post work, it requires organizations and institutions to evaluate um, the makeup of their staff, of their board, their leadership. Um, to uh, create pathways and inroads into the organization for the indigenous communities around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to, um, as Raman was mentioning, uh, to uh, kind of ask difficult questions around um, the, the inclusion of, of native people, the centering of native people in these stories and what that would take, what are the components of that? Um, and to really build relationships um, that are um, that honor um, the expertise of native people that that are really quite frankly between you know historical societies and museums and native communities um, it's not a good track record it's one of extraction it's one of um, uh, continued dispossession of not just land, but the way that we frame our history, dispossessing Native people of, of the right to frame their own histories. Um, so I think that um, along with some of these questions that are being asked around kind of longer term changes that need to happen across the field um, uh, of museum work and, and in public humanities spaces, um, there has to be Um, a very strategic approach to how we do that. And sometimes that strategic approach takes generations, right? It doesn't, it's not going to happen. The, the, The writing of some of these wrongs, the creation of more equitable cultures in our historical societies is not going to be solved within our lifetime. And I think part of Agamalt's work in collaboration um, with with our, our partners and in these discussions that we are allowed to to have in very uh, frank and honest ways is kind of um, kind of psychologically preparing our, our collaborators to accept that accept that the jump to the land acknowledgement statement does not mean that you are done you know with your indigenous initiatives um, and, and that really we're looking at, multi-generational work and the the sooner we're more comfortable with that idea um, then the better I think um, we can strategize together and for Native people multi-generational thinking is what we have been doing since time immemorial we are future focused people we have always been uh, people who consider the generations before us and the generations after us. And we are kind of situated within that, that mind frame. Um, so if we can bring in our institutions um, into that space as well, then I think we can better serve um, all of the people who live here now. That's a, a great um, introduction and sort of an answer to my last question, which was really about how you are working with how you each are working with communities and how, you know, who your audiences are, who is interested, how are you engaging other audiences? And um, I'm seeing in Dornis that this word pathways is absolutely key in so many ways in terms of um, leading away, um, sharing pathways with others, sharing experiences um, and understanding. So um, I'm sorry that our time is limited, but um, briefly, um, Ramin and Diane, can you talk about um, any new ways that you are finding to engage uh, more of the communities? Uh, I know you work with schools, um, 
We know that schools, as you said, remain uh, uh, difficult places these days. There's often battles over which stories are told. Any strategies that you are, uh, any of your own pathways that you are developing um, into the broader community? Um, well, for us, it's, it's a few things. Um, the first is where we try to leverage technology as much as we can to make it easy for people to um, approach us and hear these stories. It's a way to also provide a platform for representative history where you know, it may not be possible to get um, somebody right in Westport, for example, to speak about you know, the indigenous histories and to speak about the Pagasa people, but using technology, we can maybe speak to somebody who might be now in Rhode Island or now in the upper part of the state and have, and have a Zoom right. presentation. And that's worked really well for us. Um, we do have a native land acknowledgement. We've had one for actually quite a few years at this point. Um, we say it in, before every program, whether it's online or in person, it's on our, all of our published material, but we then have a discussion about it. Um, and we, what we try to do with all of the communities that, that deserve representation is first try to find representation from within the community. And even if that means that we have to pair a person who's not a historian formally or is not an expert formally, we pair them with somebody who is so that they're part of the discussion. And, and, and and that's what we do. The other thing that we do with the schools, for example, is we're trying to move away from the traditional school visit and become more fluid and say, and develop the kind of relationship that if we hear a teacher is teaching something, provide material. And again, technology lets us do that. Here's a link to a video. Here's a link to an archival resource um, because we feel that even though we are a private institution without public funding, we have a public obligation to provide this in, this information. Right, Diane? Uh, yeah, so one of the keys is to reach out to the various communities and um, because of this pandemic, it made the Norwalk Historical Society go virtual. And one of the things that happened and he um, has also noticed and uh, is that we automatically reached out to communities that, that are way outside of Norwalk. Uh, we have actually have an international uh, community also that uh, there are people regularly who will um, will be part of our, our lecture from England, uh, which we thought was kind of fascinating because we never thought we would ever get that far. Uh, so uh, we're also getting people who wouldn't, who would not necessarily come to our lectures in, in person, uh, and, but they get to, to, to kind of, see what we do and and uh and dabble and and so we're bringing people in that way so as we move forward with doing uh, other exhibits and 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 engaging other communities uh and that's the key you have to engage the people who are in those communities that you 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 want to to uh to uh, talk about so uh you can't do it in um in um, isolation that does not work uh, so you have to collaborate, and that's the the biggest thing to do is 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 to collaborate. So you know what the stories you're you're telling are actually unique, and they are true. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're going. Yeah, that's very interesting to hear. Again, the uh, one of the upsides of the pandemic and the isolation and the discovery of these new tools that actually 
provide a, a different kind of pathway into what we're doing. Um, I'm sorry that again, with the, we're out of time. Um, and Donis, for the historical societies who may be listening, how, uh, how can they work with, them, with you? How do they reach out to you? Um, what's yeah. next? We, we always are, um, we're, we feel like there's always, as long as an organization is based in the United States or Canada, there's always an indigenous story there. And so um, we um, are always excited to help uh, organizations that we collaborate with kind of suss out the ways that um, are meaningful for the native communities around them, but also integral to the, the stories that are being told within these public humanities and, and historical societies. So uh, you can reach us at uh, Um and we uh, you can reach out to us and, and we are um, a small but tenacious uh, team um, really committed to doing work um, to kind of phase ourselves out of existence. We really want to look at ways um, that organizations can hire um, and have on staff Indigenous uh, uh, perspectives that can provide an input on um, all of the workings of a museum or a historical society or an organization or a school. Um, so we really um, encourage all of our collaborators to, um, to hire so that a consulting firm like ours is not necessary. So we, we really look forward to continuing that. Let work. me actually spell out your, your, your name. It's A-K-O-M-A-W-T, A-K-O-M-A-W-T, Agamot. Um, so I hope some of our listeners um, follow up and contact you. So thank you very much. Um, a, a time just disappeared again. This was fascinating um, start, I think, for a conversation that we'd like to continue in whatever format um, is um, appropriate. So thank you all for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You've been listening to our September edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our subject was remaking history with our communities. Our guests were Ramin Ganeshram, Executive Director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture, Diane Jellaret, Executive Director of the Norwalk Historical Society and Museum, and Endornis Spears, co-founder of the Agamount Educational Initiative. If you missed part of the broadcast or just want to hear it again, you can hear the show on WPKN podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in Monday, October the 11th for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture.